0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts chapter 6, which is found on page
1: 1098. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the Synagogue of the Freed Men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Silesia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And Stephen replied with an overview of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And then he concluded his speech with these words in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, which is on page 1100. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison.
0: Do please turn in your Bibles to uh, the uh, beginning of that reading that uh, we had read earlier by Sue, Acts chapter 6, page 1098, is where we'll be beginning this morning. As uh, many of you know, if not all of you, uh, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. It all began, they say, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. And that, well, after a while, sparked a movement that changed the church in Europe and, of course, not just the church, it it changed and shaped Europe itself and, not least of all, this great nation that we live in uh, today. But, again, as many of you will know, the Reformation was far from smooth. Many were killed because they stood for the central truths of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with the Bible alone as our final authority people died for these truths because they believed that the eternal salvation of men and women and boys and girls was at stake hanging on these things as we remember the reformation this year then we would do well to remember the martyrs of the reformation people like Hugh Latimer Nicholas Ridley Thomas Cranmer all of whom were put to death in oxford in uh, 1555 and 56 burned at the stake just because they refuse to budge from the things that we believe now. Now, as we turn to Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning, we meet the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. As we read of Stephen's death, we hear echoes here of of Jesus' death. Stephen was accused in Acts chapter 6 and verse 13 of speaking against the temple, just as Jesus was at his trial, do you remember? The same verse tells us that Stephen was accused by false witnesses, just as Jesus was at his trial. And as Stephen was being stoned minutes away from death, maybe seconds away from death, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, we hear his prayer for those who were throwing rocks at him, the very people who were hurling stones at him to kill him. Remarkably, he prayed these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And surely those words remind us of Jesus' words on the cross, praying for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. The similarities between Stephen's death and Jesus' death are quite deliberate. This is exactly what Jesus himself taught us when he said to his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here we see that being worked out. So the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, should have been no surprise to the church. Terrible, but no surprise. Just as centuries later, the burning at the stake of the Oxford martyrs and many, many others during the Reformation should be no surprise. Indeed, it should be no surprise that many people today, in our so-called enlightened and tolerant times, continue to lose their life just because they're Christian. Today, all over the world, Christians are marginalised, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and murdered just because they bear the name of Jesus Christ. It is a terrible, terrible thing that that happens, but it should be no surprise to us. It is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Suffering for Christ is part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we see that here in Acts chapter six and seven. And as we look through these verses, we also see what we must stand firm on, even if it means opposition And persecution for us, and even death, although in this country, frankly, death is unlikely to come. Why have we started here? Well, a couple of years back, we began working our way through the Acts of the Apostles and we reached chapter 6, verse 7. Today, we simply pick up from where we left off. And when we left the book, we left at a high point. With the good and exciting news, that's chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Christianity was already beginning to have a huge impact on the world. At this time, not having left Jerusalem, Uh, But do you remember from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, when about 3,000 people became followers of Jesus on that one day in response to that one sermon, from then on the church grew. Daily, we're told in the early chapters of Acts, daily people became Christians. But of course, not everyone was happy about it. The people of Israel, and especially the, the leaders of Israel, the priests, hated it. And so in chapter 4, for example, they, they hauled Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the ecclesiastical, the ecclesiastical court of the day. And although they didn't charge them with any offence, they flogged them and then ordered them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus anymore. But with courage and determination and full of the Holy Spirit of God, they would not be silenced and they continued to proclaim the gospel. Uh, indeed in chapter six the first part of chapter six they got themselves better organized so they could focus on that task of praying and proclaiming the word of god and the result was chapter six verse seven the word of god spread and people became christians but as the word of god was proclaimed so verse nine opposition arose that will always happen when faithful gospel ministry is exercised, when the word of God is preached, we can be sure that opposition will not be far away. We're in a spiritual battle. Uh, the things we are thinking about Sunday by Sunday could not be more important. Oh, yes, there are many important issues in the world and uh, I'm glad that um, we had them prayed for by Bob earlier, from a general election to terrorist threats from the troubles in Syria to the growing nuclear tensions between North Korea and the US. I could go on and on. You watch the news as well as I do. These are all important things, don't get me wrong. God's involved in those things, bothered about those things, but there is nothing more crucial than the issues of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, and not just this morning, I trust all week round, not that we forget it when we leave here, we are about the core business of God. More than that, we're actually in business with God, the business of eternal salvation, of telling men and women and boys and girls how they can escape the wrath of God and spend all eternity with God in the glorious paradise of God's wonderful new creation. There's no more important business to be about. And when we're about that work, the evil forces of darkness in this world are hell-bent on stopping us. The devil and his demons hate seeing people saved. And so, chapter six, verse eight, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. I love that. The Holy Spirit gave Stephen the ability to speak in a way that left the leaders in Israel bamboozled, unable to stand against his wisdom. And so when their arguments didn't stack up, verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teacher of the law they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin that is the assembly of the leaders of Israel they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us and then listen to this last bit all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen's face shone, it, it was a supernatural thing. And I think we're meant to see this as a mark of God's blessing and favor on Stephen's ministry. You remember uh, someone else in the Old Testament whose face shone? Moses, when he met with God up the Mount Sinai and he came down, face shining. Now here was Stephen accused of blasphemy, no less a charge that, if proved, was punishable by death. Wrongly accused by false witnesses, yet Stephen's face shone like an angel. He wasn't guilty. Stephen's ministry has God's seal of approval on it. But although the Sanhedrin saw that supernatural shining, they didn't or, or wouldn't acknowledge it. And so, chapter seven, verse one, the high priest, the Archbishop of Canterbury, if you like, the Pope, if you're from a Catholic background, the high priest asked Stephen if the charges were true. He basically now, at this point, asked Stephen to answer the charge of blasphemy. The specific nature of the blasphemy charges we've already seen. They're spelled out for us in verses 11 and verse 13. Look back to chapter six, verse 11. Stephen was charged with speaking against Moses and against God, and specifically speaking against the temple, Verse 13, the holy place, as it's described there in verse 13. The temple, you see, was the very heart of Judaism. In Jewish thinking at the time, the temple was the place where God lived. It was God's house. You'd go to the temple to meet God. And so, do you see, it was blasphemy to speak against the temple in any way. But that was the accusation laid at Stephen's door. Verse 13, he never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law of Moses. Again, we see the parallel with Jesus. At his trial, Jesus was wrongly accused of saying he would destroy the temple. Well, what Jesus actually taught was that his body was the temple, that his body would be destroyed on the cross and after that uh, be raised three days later. Uh, Jesus was teaching, if you want to meet with God, you don't come to a building, you come to me, to Jesus. Now, Stephen was teaching exactly the same thing. And so, chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And from chapter 7, verse 2, right through to chapter 7, verse 53, we see how Stephen responds to that charge. At first glance, it's a glorious Bible overview, and in many ways it is that, but it is so much more than that. It's very specific. He's specifically answering the charges of blasphemy against him. And when we look at his conclusion in a moment, we'll see how brilliantly Stephen doesn't really just defend himself as much as put the leaders of Israel in the dock and demonstrate that their own history condemns them. Never mind you saying I'm blasphemous, he's going to say you are. Uh, There's much in this speech. We don't have time to go through it all in detail this morning. Uh, But there are two big points, I think, that run right through his speech. There may be others, but I think there are two big points. The first is this, if you're taking notes. Stephen says right through this, God is not restricted to any geographical location. He's saying that, remember why? Because he is being charged of blasphemy against the temple. This is where God lives. And he's saying, God is not restricted, never has been right through uh, history of the Bible. God has never been restricted to any geographical location. Look, the first thing Stephen does is point back to Abraham, the father of the entire Jewish nation. And he says, verse two, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. God revealed himself to Abraham in Mesopotamia. It doesn't matter if you don't know where Mesopotamia is. All you need to know is that it isn't Israel. So Stephen's first point, his first statement makes his first big point, at which he's going to run right through his speech. God is not limited to any geographical location. Look at how everything that we believe started. And Then he proceeds to demonstrate how throughout Israel's history, God has revealed himself to his people in many different locations, many different places. So after Abraham, Stephen points to Joseph. Remember the one famous for that coat of many colours. Look at verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. See, he's not in Israel, he's in Egypt, but God is with him. He was in Egypt, God was with him, and verse 10, God rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See the point? God is not limited to any geographical location. God was with Joseph in Egypt. And then the same point from verse 20. Stephen points to Moses now. Moses was born in Egypt, verse 20. And then if you look down to verse 29, he fled to Midian, where, verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Do you see what he's doing all the way through? He's giving us these geographical locations God appeared to Moses in the bush, in the desert. And then if you flip the page over, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. See, God revealed himself to Moses in the desert and it was holy ground. This is where God was. You're getting the point, God is not limited to any geographical location. Indeed, end of verse 34, God sent Moses back to Egypt, and then verse 36, God led them out of Egypt. Moses led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert, in Egypt and in the desert, God enabled Moses to do miraculous signs. God was with Moses in Egypt and in the desert. And verse 38, there in the desert, Moses met God up the mountain and received living words from God, the 10 commandments given not in Israel, given up the mountain. You see the point again and again, right through history, God has never been restricted to any geographical location. And then we come to the point where the tabernacle and the, the, the temple come into play. Look down to verse 44. He says even the tabernacle, the precursor, if you will, to the temple, remember that's the big issue that he's being accused of, even the tabernacle was given to God's people in the desert before the people of God were given the promised land through Joshua. And even when the temple was constructed, built by Solomon, but verse 47, after King David had wanted to provide a dwelling place for God, even when the temple was built, God spoke very clearly through the prophet Isaiah, verse 48, and this is the conclusion of what he's saying. So this, we know, is the big point. Verse 48, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says, Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? I made the whole world. You can't make something for me. That's the climax of Stephen's speech. Do you see how throughout it he demonstrates that God himself, through his unfolding revelation of himself, through his word, clearly taught that he does not dwell in houses built by people. Now Israel knew all this. It was in their scriptures. That's why he's gone he's gone through all this, saying, you know this. And because they knew it but didn't live it, Verse 51, Stephen calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. (laughs) Remarkable words, but please, this is not schoolboy name-calling. These are not random derogatory words plucked out of the air to try and cause maximum insult. Oh, they were insulting, but that wasn't the point. No, this is the conclusion of Stephen's biblical survey of the temple. And his conclusion is that the religious leaders who hold the highest office in the land are like Gentiles, unbelievers. You see, they are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Verse 51, they are resisting the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They accuse Stephen of blasphemy, but through his brilliant speech, his brilliant unfolding of the whole Bible, Stephen turns the charge against them and shows them that they are the ones guilty of blasphemy because they had restricted God to a place made by human hands. He says, that is shocking. And indeed, how shocking it is that they're the ones who are full of blasphemy. Now, before we tut tut too loudly and um, you know, shake our heads, desperately, there are many examples of this kind of pagan idolatry going on in the church today, in the church God is not restricted to a geographical location. He doesn't live in buildings made, made by men. We don't need to go to a building to meet God. We meet God in Jesus. But loads of people today act as if you do have to go to a building to meet God. And what I'm going to unpack for us now is to show you how that happens. And these were the issues that 500 years ago the reformers fought against. Oh, other issues as well. But not least of all these very issues that I'm going to unpack for us now. Issues so important that the reformers were prepared to die for it. Issues so important that Stephen was prepared to die. The uh, Bible commentator uh, David Gooding writes these words. Christendom, to an alarming extent, lost its grip on the gospel and in many ways reverted to pre-Christian Judaism. Let me explain. Think about the temple. A significant part of temple worship were the priests, Priests stood between God and the people. You couldn't come directly to God. you had to go through a priest. And what does the gospel tell us? Jesus is our great high priest. There is no need for priests today. We don't go through a person. You don't have to go to somebody to confess your sin to them. You go directly to Jesus. And you so, do you see, to have priests is idolatrous and blasphemous. It is to put people in the place that belongs to Jesus alone. But today, many, call, many church ministers call themselves priests and many people call church ministers priests. Priesthood is a terrible thing today. It suggests that I can only get to God through another person. I can't go directly to him. A priesthood divides the people of God into two different groups. You've got the priesthood and the laity. Luther the great reformer, attacked that very thing, arguing that there is no distinction between priesthood and laity. We shouldn't call our church leaders priests. We shouldn't think of them in that way. We shouldn't refer to them as priests you know, or defer to them as priests. And we do well not to talk about people who aren't church leaders as laity as well. This incidentally is why I'm reluctant to wear ecclesiastical vestments, I don't want to suggest in any way that I'm a priest or that I'm different to anyone else in the church. I mean some people think I'm different but that's not because I'm a minister it's just because I'm weird but you know do you know the point? In the temple there were priests then they were all pointing to the ministry of Jesus Christ who is the great high priest and we don't need priests anymore. In the temple the priests offered sacrifices on the altar. The Bible tells us that Jesus is now the one Perfect sacrifices. All those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. He's the perfect sacrifice. The cross is the altar where the sacrifice dies. And the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all, never to be repeated. No need to repeat it. His death was enough to bring us complete and utter relationship with with God. Yet people refer to the communion table as an altar, it's not an altar. Some teach and believe that what is happening at the communion table is a sacrifice being made again and again and again. Why do we do that? Jesus died once for all. When we take communion, we are sharing a meal and remembering Jesus' sacrifice, not doing it all over again. Take the temple itself. It was divided by a great curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? That curtain was torn in two, opening the way, because the, the most holy place was the place where God, God dwelt. As he died on the cross, Mark tells us at that very moment, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, opening the way so that anyone and everyone can come into the very presence of God. Yet desperately, churches have been constructed with the nave where the laity gather, and then another section railed off and sometimes screened off, called the chancel, where only the priests can stand. And in doing that, we give the impression that there is a most holy part of the building, and woe betide anyone entering it. You see, all of that is just awful taking us back to something that Jesus has freed us from. In so many ways in Christendom, there's been an attempt to return to the temple, but we don't meet God in a building. We meet him in Christ. This is not God's house. We should never refer to it as that, ever. Now, do you see, this is not a study on church architecture or ecclesiastical protocol. These things are so important that uh, that Stephen died for them. These things were so important that the reformers were prepared to give their lives for these things and others as well, but these, not least of all these things because what we're talking about is how we meet God. If we get this wrong, men and women and boys and girls don't know that they can come freely to God by faith alone, through Christ alone, uh, but through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. What I'm saying is this is an issue on which the the eternal salvation of precious people hangs. If we are teaching these things wrongly, doing anything that teaches these things, people will think they've got to go through um, a priest to get to God. So they won't put their faith in Christ alone, so they will not be saved. So we must understand these issues and be prepared to stand up for them. Even when it's uncomfortable, even if it makes us unpopular, even when we're marginalized and accused of being troublemakers, these things are so important. We should be ready to lose our lives for them. The eternal destiny of men and women and boys and girls, hang on it. We do not come to know God through coming into a building or through priests, save by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with the Bible alone as our final authority. Stand for that, though, and we must, But stand for it and we will be rejected. And that rejection is the second theme running right through Stephen's speech. Don't fear, I'm not going to do a long one now. But it's an important second point that we see. First, God is not restricted to any geographical location and very quickly and briefly, second point, God's deliverers were constantly rejected by Israel. God's deliverers were constantly rejected by Israel. That's what we see right through Stephen's speech. Very quickly, come with me through it and then we're almost there. Chapter seven, verse nine. Back to uh, earlier on in Stephen's speech. All this to show that all the way through the uh, unfolding revelation of God in the Old Testament, all the way through, the people that God raised up to be deliverers were rejected by God's people chapter 7 verse 9 the patriarchs were jealous of joseph they sold him as a slave into egypt but god was with him as we've already seen you see joseph was chosen to deliver israel but you see he was rejected by the very patriarchs of israel the forefathers the same rejection was true of moses Verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, to be their deliverer, but they did not. And we see that in verse 27, when Moses tried to help the Israelites, they rejected him, saying halfway through verse 27, who made you ruler and judge? And then look down to verse 35 over the page. Same point. Moses is the deliverer, but people rejected him. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? Moses sent to be the deliverer of God's people, rejected God's people, and even after he'd led them out of Egypt, that rejection continued, verse 38. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, he received living words to pass on to us, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turn back to Egypt. Do you see it all the way through Israel's history? God raises up deliverers, God's people that uh, reject them. And in case you think that I'm plucking that out and it's not really Stephen's main point, see how he summarises his speech, because this is how he summarises it. Verse 51, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. There, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? You see, they, 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 they rejected everybody who came in God's name. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, the Lord Jesus. Right through the history, Israel rejected the very people God sent to deliver them right down until Jesus Christ himself. That's Stephen's conclusion. And so again, turning the tables and accusing Israel's leaders of blasphemy. You're saying, I'm rejecting uh, Moses. You're the one who's rejected him. And you continue to reject God's deliverers today. And so verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious, I bet they were. And they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. Stephen. But, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What Stephen saw there reinforced Stephen's main point. God's not tied to any earthly geographical location. Jesus is in heaven, seated next to to God who reigns with earth as his footstool. Stephen saw that, but he's claimed to see that To see God's throne in heaven was just too much for the religious leaders to hear and that led to his second point being further fulfilled. They rejected him. Verse 57. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. And then look at verse 59. While they were stoning, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. See, the irony in the ending of all of this, the people who accused Stephen of breaking the law of Moses broke the law themselves by killing Stephen. This wasn't a legal stoning. And just as Stephen proved from God's word that God's deliverers were constantly rejected by Israel, so the leaders of Israel rejected and murdered Stephen who had the gospel, which was the very thing that would have delivered them. So Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Now to be a martyr, you have to believe that what you're about to die for is worth more than life itself. Stephen believed the issue of how we come to know God is important enough to die for, and we should too. And so like Stephen, we should engage with the hostile religious world. As I've been preparing this, I've been challenged this week to be bolder in speaking about these issues to those who appear to believe the same as us, yet who are acting in ways that are fundamentally opposed to the gospel. i have got to be ready to stand up for that. We should be prepared to give our lives so that men and women and boys and girls know that God can be known not in a building but in Jesus Christ in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, with the Bible alone as our final authority. Many of the reformers were prepared to die for that. It's 500 years since that happened, that began. On this 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, we too, I think, are called to follow in Stephen's footsteps and the footsteps of the Oxford martyrs and in the footsteps of the thousands who die for these things since and who continue to die today. My guess is we won't actually have to die, not in this country. But we must be ready to daily give our lives so that everyone can know God through Christ. It won't make us popular, but it is worth living for and even dying for. Let's pray together. We thank you our Lord and God for the wonderful and glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of the work of Jesus on the cross it is um, remarkably easy to come into your presence. We thank you that uh, the access is clear. We thank you very much that all we need to do is put our faith and trust in you and then we can know you forever. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for those who've stood for this gospel down through the years, for Stephen, uh, for the Oxford martyrs and many others in the Reformation and then for thousands and thousands of people since. We thank you very much for their courage and we pray that you would inspire us, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we too may be courageous standing for this truth, standing so that um, the next generation we'll have a faithful gospel witness in this land and all around the world. Now please, help us to be ready to lose our lives in that work for your praise and glory. Amen.